Stuart Lancaster is the senior coach of Leinster Rugby and is best known for being head coach of England from 2011 until 2015. As you'll hear, Stuart is a humble and curious learner and a lifelong teacher, a foundation that has seen him have coaching success wherever he's been. With the Rugby World Cup in full swing, this was the perfect time to release this interview with Stuart. I'm Cody Royal, and this is Where Others Won't. Stuart Lancaster, thanks for joining me, mate. No problem. Happy to be on. Let's start at the top. Let's go back to your journey into coaching. For you, coming off playing, what was that that journey like for you, even in your head? Was it something that you were looking to get into? Was it a conversation with a a coach that said, hey, you could do this? Where did the idea come from and and the journey start for you? Well, it started when I was um, uh, at university because – I did a sports science degree um, back in 1988 to 91. And then I did a PGCE. So PGCE in the UK, so it gives you the teaching qualification for PE. And uh, I was effectively, well, I qualified as a PE teacher. So I taught PE uh, in school from the ages of uh, 21 to 30. And during that um, PGCE, I was I was educated by some fantastic coach educators or teacher educators. So taught the fundamentals of teaching. You know, I was already a reasonable all-rounder at sports. So I had a good grasp of basketball, badminton, soccer, rugby, you know, cricket, etc. So I, I knew the the what. Um, I needed the how to coach, how to teach. Um, so I was taught those, and you know, PGC sets you up well for teaching. So. So then I went into teaching, and the game of rugby union during the 90s was amateur. Um, and the game only went professional in 95. Right. So I was I was effectively a teacher. I trained on a Tuesday, Thursday night. I played on a Saturday. And then as the game went professional, I got an opportunity to leave teacher and go full-time as a rugby player, which I did for a year. I took a sabbatical. Anyway, during that year, I was 28, 29 years old at the time. I got uh, a hamstring injury, a high hamstring, basically pulled the hamstring off the bone and uh, I was coming out of contract, so they, um, I realised they weren't going to renew my contract, so I went back into teaching. Um, but during that year, I started coaching the academy, uh, the club I was at, uh, which was effectively the under-18s, under-19s, under-20s, applying all the things I'd learned as a teacher into, into my coaching. Uh, and then the following year, the job of the academy manager came up at the club, which I applied for, and I got that, and I was awarded the licence to run the um, Ruby Union Academy uh, in the county I was working in, in Yorkshire. Uh, and so that gave me obviously the stepping stone into full-time coaching on the back of a playing career. So it wasn't just, you know, like I was a player and someone said, oh, here, why don't you be a coach? You know, it was, it was a lot more, there was a lot more to it than that. For you then, you know, sitting there on, on day one, you've just been given the job to coach England rugby. What's going through your head on, on that when you kind of sit in the office and you've got two seconds to yourself? coming from, like you said, you know, uh, an amateur sport and, and then all of a sudden, you know, 15, 20 years later, you're, you're the coach of your home country. What, what does that look like? Yeah, well, I was, I was, it was never, 
when I was a PE teacher, I never in my wildest dreams thought I would gravitate to be the national okay. coach. But right. there's, a, there's, a, there's a sequence of events that happened and that are probably worth sharing. That so I did I did um, various coaching qualifications as I was teaching and leading into that academy coaching job. So did my level four, did my level five. I did the academy manager's job for five years. And then in 2005, the director of rugby of the club I was at, he resigned. And I then went to the CEO and said, listen, I think I, I can do this job, even though I was young, 35 years old. You know, I felt prepared. I'd taught all that time. I had five years in the academy. I understood the club. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd done my qualifications. I felt... I had a good grasp of coaching, leadership, and management. Anyway, I did that for two years, and we had success. We got promoted, but then the second year, it was a real challenge because we were in the premiership on a lower budget, and you know we were losing more games than we were winning. Um, and then I got the opportunity to join the, the Rugby Football Union, so the national organisation. Uh, and the job was effectively to run all the academies in the country, run the international age grade teams, so England 18s, England 20s, etc., and um, uh, and also coach England Saxons. So England Saxons were England's second team. They only had like three or four games a year. But I did right. that for three or four years. So again, got a great grounding in the difference between club rugby and international rugby. And then in 2011, Martin Johnson, the England coach at the time, resigned. And the RFU were in a bit of turmoil. And I basically put my hand up and said, why don't I do the interim job? So uh, hold the fort for the Six Nations because... Martin Johnson, I think, resigned in November. The Six Nations was in January, you know, so there was very little time to recruit a new coach. So I did the interim job, um, and uh, I'll never forget, yeah, you're right, it was one of those moments in time. I was on the train home from London to Leeds, and uh, it had been agreed by the board that I was going to do the Six Nations, but the story hadn't broken in the press. So other than, I actually hadn't told my wife, to be honest. Um, <laughs> So there was just me at the CEO at the time, um, the board knew. Um, it was only when I got home, I said to my wife, we were talking about January and what was going to come around the corner. I said, well, I'll be a bit busy because um, I'm coaching England. She was like, you are. <laughs> uh, and uh, so then it was like a whirlwind. Obviously, you know, you, this is like now mid, mid-November, early December, and you're trying to plan the camp and, you know, put your own spin on things, had to change the team a bit. And, you know, we... We ended up playing in the first, my first game in charge of England was against um, Scotland. Um, and we managed to get a win. Uh, second game was Italy away, we managed to get the win. Um, then we lost against Wales at um, Twickenham, but then we went away and beat France away from home. And then we beat Ireland. Um, ironically, now here I am in Ireland, but um, beat Ireland in the final game. And alongside this Six Nations in 2012 was the application and the interview process for the full-time England head coaching role. So I um, put my hat in the ring for that alongside other coaches and, uh, yeah, got the job full-time. Looking back at just how the game's changed, like what's the biggest change for you? You know, obviously there's just the athletes themselves, uh, the technology that we have now, the media, which you talked about a little bit, you know, tactics and the fans, you know, and how they engage with the game now. But for you, kind of coming from that amateur environment when you're starting out to having seen it at its pinnacle, how do you assess just the game of rugby in general? Um, Yeah, I think think it's all of the above. I think everything, you know, probably in every sport I watch, you know, I watch a lot of sport, everything is growing exponentially, you know, with the, the advent of, the media and the profile of each and every sport and every coach and every player within it because you're more accessible because of 
you know, the, the availability of people to, to watch a game either live or on TV or streaming or whatever. So the profile has risen um, hugely. I mean, rugby union is only a young sport professionally, and we're talking 2000, 1995 when it went professional. So, you know, it's still a very young sport. Um, but, you know, the World Cup now, the Six Nations, any international game, European Cup finals, you know, it's big, it's big news and big business in, in every way, shape and form. So that does change things, obviously, particularly when you're the head coach, because mm-hmm. you gravitate, you grow up being a coach. You know, I grew up being a teacher into a coaching world. And um, uh, and then you layer on, you know, management challenges and management experience and leadership experience. But but because of the complexity of the moving parts to the job, like being an England head coach, there's probably a lot more leadership and management responsibility that begins to sort of uh, influence, well, it, it takes up your time, really. So your, your coaching time is limited or becomes limited. And so you tend to delegate the coaching time to other coaches within your organization and you end up looking after the bigger picture, which, which is something I enjoy doing. But when I look back now to my time with England and now my time at Leinster, um, I'm certainly more hands-on coach now. So if I was to proportion the time out, I would say, Coaching England, it was 50% leadership, 40% management, 10% coaching. Whereas mm-hmm. now at Leinster, um, I'm probably 60% coaching, 30% leadership, 10% management, um, which is a far healthier balance for me for someone who's been brought up as a teacher. Listeners of the show will know that I love studying other sports and cross-pollinating the ideas. I mean, this is a show that cross-pollinates sport and business. After the England job, you had some time to step away from rugby and study things inside and outside of the game. How did that time impact your coaching philosophy, you know, tactically, but also from a man management perspective and just all the things that go along with the craft of coaching? Yeah, no, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm a bit, I'm a, I'm a bit like you, it sounds like, in the, I'm a, a student of sport, I guess. You know, I, I was brought up playing a variety of different um, sports obviously gravitated to rugby as being my sport, but I'll take an active interest in many, you know. And um, I'm always fascinated to meet coaches. I'm lucky in that I've spent time with many of the coaches. People have been very accommodating. I've been around the world. I've spent time at Atlanta Falcons. Um, spent time in Australia, New Zealand, South Africa. Um, I've spoken at leadership conferences and coaching conferences, you know, around the world really. And um, uh, so I've got a fantastic opportunity to learn from other coaches and there are so many similarities you know it's it's almost too, there's too many to list um i think you know one of the things that I, I try and do is have an open mind about how i can get better i mean i've got leadership books sports and autobiographies and i'm forever um watching you know it's people things like netflix and amazon you know they're great now for content for for coaches where you're looking at the behind the scenes of how teams operate it all builds to help uh, either reinforce your philosophy or or give you ideas how to you know evolve your philosophy as a coach. Um, and by that I mean you know there's two philosophies really. One is your on-field coaching philosophy, so how you see the game being played in terms of you know the tactics and techniques techniques of, of rugby. But your off-field philosophy, the values and the behaviours that you want in your team, and how you create that spirit. And you know that's the thing that is transferable from from team sport to team sport. And there are so many brilliant examples of great coaches out there. And, um, you know, learning by sharing, I think, is a big thing for me. Um, so I would often give give as much away as I can. And, you know, many times you get more back in return. 
for me, it's not like there's Aussie rules conferences I can go to. So being invited to go and watch hockey training with one of the OHL junior hockey teams or getting to watch a, a game with you know the high-performance guys at the Toronto Blue Jays, it's been a real lifeline to be able to bounce ideas around and quite frankly, not go mad. The, the, the Aussie rules team, some of the teams, I went to Hawthorne, for example, in, in Melbourne, and, uh, you know, some of those teams would be, you know, way ahead of other sports, really. Um, uh, you know, some great coaching practice takes place, certainly in that sport. NRL, obviously, in Australia as well. I'd spent time with some of the best rugby league teams. Yeah, and the list goes on. New Zealand, obviously, from from a rugby union perspective, is is still the probably number one country in the world. So yeah, I think if you, I find certainly when coaches contact me, you know, can we spend time? Can we chat? Can we just so that you know you're always open minded and and willing to share because you know, let's say people are so willing to to give something back. It's been really interesting to watch AFL coaching develop into a world class coaching and performance environment because, you know, like rugby, the game only went professional early 90s and for 100 years was only played in one state. And so it's just been interesting to watch and observe and especially more recently from the outside since moving to Canada. It's really developed fast. Um, One of the facets that I like is that coaches do get time with a group you know, they're not in and out in 12 weeks like in soccer. So they can really develop their craft and engage in the tribalism that's ingrained in the sport, which I think is a really important element of AFL's fabric. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it, it, the same comparison you could say about living in Ireland. So, mm-hmm. you know, Ireland obviously is a, um, a small population in terms of country, you know, three or four million. But the Gaelic football, you know, um, Gaelic football and the hurling. I mean, it's just huge, huge sport over here. I mean, there were two semi-finals run at the weekend. Both played at Croke Park. Um, 65, 70,000 people at both games. Uh, and the tribal rivalry, you know, between the two, the two teams or the four teams in the semi-final, was incredible. And you know, these are amateur players playing in a, in a effectively a professional game. And you know, you wouldn't play. I don't think hurling or Gaelic football is played in any of the. I mean, the closest to Gaelic football is probably Aussie rules, really. Uh, and I think you've actually got to be here to to feel it and live it. And um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I've really sort of taken to those two sports as an example just by living here, but also interested in sharing practice with the coaches. So I did um, a bit like you've done. I did a leadership podcast uh, in Ireland on um, great leaders I've worked with and uh, coached with or, or, or met. Uh, and on the back of it, I was asked to go and speak at the Gaelic, the Gaelic Football Coaching Conference. So that was 800 people at Croke Park, which was a huge event. But it's a great opportunity for me to share what I'd learned as a part-time coach, for, you know, as a full-time professional coach, um, and try and help their sport, even though I, I was relatively new to it only a year ago. And just to explain that in a little bit more detail, particularly for North Americans, the GAA look after Gaelic football and hurling. It's a provincial championship. So if you were born in Dublin, you're playing for County Dublin. If you're born in Galway, you're playing for County Galway. There's essentially no way out. So there's a real pride to represent your county, isn't there? Which is a nice segue, actually. The media and fans get ravenous about player movement, 
But I've heard you talk about cohesion, of having all your guys at Leinster, having gone through school together. Do you think player movement and, you know, buying big-name players is potentially a little bit overrated? You also want talent in your team, you know, but I think a sense of identity is actually critical in a team. Um, uh, identity and cohesion uh, would be the two things I would say, um, you know, I would, I would put a priority to on. So, you know, your sense of identity is, you know, the province that you play for, so Leinster, you know, I'm very lucky in that, you know, I've come into a team that 95% of our team is homegrown and yet we're one of the best teams in Europe. So these lads have grown up wanting to play for Leinster. They're born and bred in Leinster. They live in Leinster. You know, they, they've grown up watching the former players from Leinster and they will be inspiring the future young kids who are 10, 11 years old to play for Leinster. Mm-hmm. And so if you, want, if you want a team that wants long-term sustainability, I do think that's the, it's a really strong model to follow. I know there are buying clubs out there, you know, in all sports that can buy success, but I wonder how long you can really sustain success. You know, I see it in American football where teams like can leave one city and emerge in another city and a different name. And uh, the people of Leinster, as an example, they'd be very proud of their homegrown talent. And that sense of identity not just um, uh, correlates through the playing squad because they want to play for each other because they care for each other because they were born and bred together, but the people who connect and the fans really want to support the team and they're, there's a real sense of connection between you and the community. And I think that creates a strength in a team as well. And then you ally that then, that sense of identity to um, cohesion. And cohesion being, you know, the intuitive relationship you have with your teammates that when you're under pressure, you know what's going to happen. That is often really, I think, only grown by having time together. Um, academy time, age grade time, development time, senior time. Uh, and so when it really comes down to the nitty gritty of winning the big, big games, that sense of cohesion that's born out of people having worked together for days in, days out, weeks in, weeks out, years in, years out, can only be a good thing, really. Yeah, I think I'm lucky in that I'm at, I'm at that environment. Obviously, internationally, um, it's a different, it's not, it's, it's different in some respects because you're pulling together, um, like in England, for example, I was coaching England, there's 12 premiership clubs. So you pull in players together from 12 different philosophies and 12 different strong identities themselves into a national identity. And that's where sometimes that's a challenge, you know, because because they obviously are deeply ingrained and the majority of their time is with their clubs. So they they pick up the habits and the traits that their clubs obviously have within their their sense, their right. sense, their, their, their organisation. And, um, you know, with a country like England, you know, we talked a lot about what it means to be English, you know, and creating that sense of identity about being English so that, that can be a strength when we play against Wales or Scotland or Ireland or New Zealand or Australia or, or whoever. Um, so I think, you know, I'm lucky in that I've, I've coached in both environments, you know, both internationally, that representative rugby, which is, which is different, and that club environment, which is, which is born out of a strong sense of identity. Mm-hmm. I've had Ben Darwin on the show, and I know you follow Gainline's work as well. They've got some incredible data to support what we've been talking about that there's a lot to be said for the right kind of stability of having 15 guys who might be all million dollar players, but have never played together at any level. It's a really fascinating concept in both sport and business. 
for me, um, the best way I can describe it is is like a, a pyramid. So if I was building an organization, be a sporting team or a business, I would start with culture as the base layer of the pyramid. Then I would get that bit right. And then I'd talk about the identity of what the organization stands for, whether it's a teaching world or a, whatever, a doctor's pharmacy or the health service or the police force or whatever it is, what you stand for and what you're trying to achieve and what your higher purpose is. And once you've got those three things in place, then you can start building the behaviors and standards that you expect. And ultimately, what you want to try and do is to create ownership for the people who work for the organization so they can then drive the, the values and behavior yourself and themselves. And that's ultimately where the strengths come from. And I think you're right in that I don't think constant change makes it very difficult to achieve that. However, I do think that the great teams, I was, I was given this analogy um, by this uh, coach mentor once who said to me, you know, the performance clock Stuart, is is like a, your health of your team. The light, health of your team is like being on a clock phase. So if you're at 10 o'clock, you're a team on the rise. You know, you're rising to 11 o'clock. You're beginning to peak and mature. A team at its lowest point is at six o'clock. And you're always working away around this, this clock phase. And the great teams are the one who get to 11 o'clock and 12 o'clock and then make change before change is necessary. So it's not wholesale changes, but it's, it's tweaking things. It's dropping a senior player out, bringing a younger player through. It's changing assistant coach. And so you've got success. You've won the championship. But then you're constantly evolving and changing. Where teams or organizations sometimes I see struggle is that they get to the top. They achieve success. They sit back and enjoy the moment. They keep doing the same thing with the same people in the same way. In the meantime, the opposition has caught up learnt from them, overtaken them, and suddenly you're back down to six o'clock again, everyone gets sacked and you have to start the whole cycle again. That for me, it's it's building the pyramid and then also having the capacity and the uh, timing of when to make the subtle changes to keep the team at the top. Yeah, we don't often plan to win, do we? We like to project and plan for every contingency except what's going to happen when we win. What's going to change? Waning motivation is one part of it, obviously. And, but that's why it's so incredible when teams go back-to-back or when we were talking about GAA earlier, you know, Dublin, five in a row. It, that's what makes it so fascinating and difficult. I'm going to change tact a little bit here. What's your opinion on coaching partnerships? I've been thinking about this since my interview with Sam Walker, who wrote The Captain Class. I know you've spoken openly about your relationship with Leo Cullen at Leinster. I feel like we do still tend to give all the glory to the head coach, but often it's about the dynamic between coaches, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, the, me- the media would narrow it down to one person. You know, They want to make it around one person and one thing. And... Um... It, it's never like that in any team I've worked in. Um, and you're right, you know, I did a presentation with Leo, who I work with at Leinster, to the Six Nations Coaching Conference in um, Bordeaux in France. And um, we talked about a collaborative management. Um, and I think I gave some examples of things I think are, pre, uh, are imperative if you want a collaborative management structure. And the first is for everyone to ditch their ego <laughs> and not care who's in charge to a certain extent. And obviously someone needs to make the final call, the final selection decision and, you know, um, the final, the final plan, if you like. Um, but there's no way one person can do all that in a, in a team sport. There's no way one person can do 
offense, defense, you know, special teams, set piece in rugby. Um, and, you know, I came into a team where, you know, I'd, put, I'd coached international rugby and perhaps there's a little bit more experience than the coaching team were there. But, you know, I didn't need to be front and center. I just wanted to get in there and help out and help the coaches grow and help the team grow uh, and support Leo in his decision making. So I think if Leo's different, you know, if he was worried about an experienced coach coming in, I don't think it would have worked. And I think if I'd have been desperate to be back at the the number one position, then I don't think it would work. But because neither of us are like that, then it has worked. And as a consequence, you know, I signed initially for um, nine months. Then I signed for another two years. And we won the European Cup, the Pro 14 final. We did the double. Uh, last season, we just lost the European Cup final, but we won the Pro 14 championship at the end of the season. So we won three titles out of four. And, you know, I've just re-signed for another two years because mm-hmm. it's such a, an enjoyable environment to work in. And also... You know, we sort of complement each other's strengths. So, whereas I was saying previously about leadership management and coaching, Leo's a very good manager. So he does a lot of that stuff, which frees me up to the coaching and the leadership piece, which, which is fantastic because, you know, as much as I don't mind doing the management, it's it's a lot more enjoyable doing the coaching. I think that's a, you know, again, not something we tend to talk about, but I love seeing coaches that aren't necessarily just hell bent on being the head coach. Like once they, you know, they're, they're happy to go up and down the structure and, and lend their expertise in, in various different places. And I, I just talked about Bill Belichick and he's a perfect example of that. You know, a lot of people don't talk about the five years in Cleveland and then, you know, went back to being an assistant coach before he kind of took the new England job and, uh, you know, you could have just said, no, I'm a head coach now and I have to be, you know, I have to have that title. Um, and and again. Yeah, no, I think it's a really good point. I think I do think about it a lot in that, you know, I wonder if I will at some point, and I probably will go back to, a, you know, number one position, but it almost feels like I'm I'm, I'm sharing it with Leo any at the moment. But um, in the hmm. future, perhaps I will. But, you know, I'm 49, you know, I want to, have a long-term career in coaching. And I look at some of the great coaches and they're at the best at 60, aren't they? You know, they're often not, you know, it's, there's no age cap to coaching really. Um, and, you know, I want to keep, keep getting better and um, keep learning uh, and keep working with good players and good people. And I'm, I'm looking in that place at the moment. Yeah. There's no linear way, is there? Close to home here, Nick Nurse just won an NBA title with the Raptors and spent most of his coaching career coaching basketball in England, of all places. And they <laughs> they call him a rookie coach here. Last season, they called him a rookie coach. And he's actually one of the most experienced head coaches in the entire league. Who would you say would have been the most influential person who's shaped the way you view coaching and the game of rugby um perhaps someone inside or even outside the game that's just really struck a chord with you you know that you resonate with uh well there'll be many probably probably too many to mention really but um the bit just to draw some so obviously all those teacher educators who taught me you know the first the principles of teaching would would, would be some um my first coach professional coach phil davis at the club i played at um there was a guy in national academy coach when i was an academy manager called brian ashton a really creative innovative coach and he he was a big influence on me i had two what i'll call mentors one would be a guy called kevin barron who was head of coach development for the rfu and um 
another guy who used to be a former basketball coach in, in England uh, called Bill Bezik, um, who I think has done some work in the US actually. And um, they, they, those two would be big. Um, I was mentored once by a head teacher from a school, which is a fantastic mentorship for me because it wasn't about the rugby. It was about managing people and challenges of, you know, discipline or staff morale or whatever it was. And, you know, probably a lot of people who don't even know they've done it, you know, Bill Walsh would have been a big influence on my career. I've never met him, obviously, you know, he's passed away, but his book, The Score Will Take Care of Itself, would be my number one go-to book. But Me too. You know, if, you, if, you came and, if you came and looked at my list of books, both in Dublin and in Leeds, where I live um, with family, um, I've probably got about 500, I would say. So everyone in their own way. Um, and typically, you know, I would sort of, Sometimes I'd try and connect with the person who wrote the book and, you know, I'll give you an example. Jim Collins wrote the book, Good to Great, and we went to Denver on a pre-season training camp with England. And I looked, I thought, oh, Jim Collins lives in Boulder. So I thought, well, I'll drop him an email, you never know, I might be able to, you know, get in there for a meeting and pick his brains. And anyway, I did. I managed to get in there and I uh, met him. And Amazing. He, he sat me down and we chatted about his book and what great organisations and then he brought all his staff in and we had this amazing conversation where I was talking about my journey as a leader. And then he followed my progress as national coach leaving England. And uh, I had a Skype call with him. It must have been maybe, I don't know, nine months ago now. But it was amazing, really, to have a Skype call with someone like him who's, who's done so much. And, you know, he, he's actually a climber as well. And he, uh, he said to me, there's always another mountain to climb, Stuart. He told me the story of Steve Jobs, who got moved on by Apple, you know, and then 12 years later came back and made it company that it became so um yes there's someone like him but you know the list goes on you know of many many great coaches i've met or books i've read and then on the flip side of that who are you watching now that is maybe coming through the system young guys someone making waves or you know someone that you just watching that you think has it i'll tell you i'll tell you what i, I really really enjoy is um there are a lot of players who i coached who have now become coaches mm -hmm. and you know i look at the sort of bill walsh legacy and i look at like you almost look like there's a, I think it's a family trail seen somewhere and then should bill balichek's the same where coaches who've worked underneath him who've gone on to become players who've become coaches who become head coaches so i would say you know i spend my time um looking out for and trying to help mentor and support you know, the coaches who I've coached as players, so they're now entering their early 30s to mid-30s, academy managers, becoming head coaches, um, trying to pass on what I've learned. And um, uh, so, yeah, that that would be the main the main people I look at. Um, obviously, in, in England, you know, there's some soccer coaches. You know, um, Eddie Howe at, at, at Bournemouth has done a great job. Um, he's yeah. a young coach. The guy at the LA Rams, um, Sean, yeah, he's yeah, 30, 32, I think, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's amazing what he's done. Um, obviously, Dan Quinn, you know, I know from spending time at the Falcons and he, he uh, you know, getting to the Super Bowl. I'm very lucky in that I, I'm involved with leaders in performance and leaders in performance um, create what's called a P8 summit. So they have the coaching, uh, the leadership conference, but the day before they put on um, like a, a coaches only event, that you only get invited to, it's, it's off the record, it's no media. So there's usually between, say, 10 and 15 coaches from around the world. And, you know, I've been in there with 
people from the San Antonio Spurs, Dave Brailsford from British Cycling has been there, Arsene Wenger from Arsenal Football. So, you know, they're great. Trent Robinson from, you know, the Roosters. So, you know, they're amazing things to be invited to. And I was lucky that I yeah, get the invite from leaders to go to Boston. And, uh, you know, wherever I can go, I can. I'm, I'm also on technical advisory boards for other sports as well, which I find uh, rewarding. Yeah. And that you get a chance to connect with young coaches there. And like the England football team, you know, Gareth Southgate would be similar, similar to me. He lives not too far away. So that's that's another great place to meet young coaches or, or coaches who are a similar similar age. Yeah, that, I follow the guys that you're talking about as well, and it's funny, you know, in my book I, I wrote about most of those guys, like a Sean McVeigh, and just kind of made the argument that we, we tend to, particularly in the business world, we tend to put this label of you know you've got to have X amount of experience, or you've got to have done the particular job in the past and we only promote those people into leadership roles and and yeah. when, we, when we look at sport and we see a Sean McVeigh and we see an Eddie Howe and uh, Julian Nagelsman who I just I think he just turned 30 uh, now coaches uh, Red Bull in Germany but yeah um yeah we, we tend to have this ageism but uh, I think yeah. we should be we need to find ways to identify leaders and coaches in their natural environment and and put them into a pathway like we do in sports and help them along because there's so many powerful people and powerful ideas that just get stuck in the hierarchy. Yeah, my biggest my biggest frustration would be that the people that appoint the coaches, I wonder how often they really really sit down and think about what they want and really do due diligence and proper homework on the coaches that are out there. Um, mm-hmm. Certainly in sport, like I guess football in England, you know, it's almost like the manager gets sacked and then the next day another manager gets appointed almost on the back of a phone call. And, you know, it's got to be a more sophisticated way to try and build your team than that. Um, and I was just lucky that I did my level five coaching course. And on the day the report came out on my on me from the course, it landed on the CEO's deck. Was a, the CEO's desk was the day the head coach resigned. And it, because my report was in front of the CEO, I think he thought, oh, maybe we've got someone from within. You know, I was 35 at the time. And I don't think, if that if that report hadn't landed on his desk on that day, I don't think I'd have got the job. I really don't. Um, and my, my life would have taken a completely different path and I'd have been, you know, um, hopefully doing a good job somewhere, but I don't think I'd have risen to the job of coaching England and coaching in Leinster now. So I think you've got to be, You've got to be promoted. Um, someone has to promote you, I think. You've got to be supported. But also the people who make the decisions have to be understand what good looks like. And, you know, they'd spend, you'd spend plenty of time looking for players, wouldn't you? You know, you know everything about every player inside out. Whereas, you know, do you know the same about the coaches? I don't know. Exactly. There's a mad scramble to hire someone, so you beat the opposition. But often you wonder whether anyone has been set up for success you know how how much can an owner or a ceo really find out about someone in a one or two hour meeting i want to get you out of here mate because i think i can hear your microwave beeping and i know you're cooking your veggies (laughs) Um, where can people follow along with you yeah so um, a couple of ways really um i'm on linkedin so obviously that was how you connected with me. And um, uh, those leadership podcasts I mentioned that I did on News Talk, so they're on there. Um, and there's some leadership 
content. Basically, it's a long story. I'll, I'll keep it short. But um, yeah, so please connect on LinkedIn. You know, I'm certainly happy to share um, what I've learned with anyone really. And uh, um, so that's one thing. But I was asked, I, I hooked up this guy and I created a load of leadership content. So all the leadership content that I, the books I've read, I, I condensed down into what I'd call uh, six modules of leadership, each each having five presentations in each of less, let's say the five or 10 minutes in length, you know, so building your coaching credibility and um, building a team identity, uh, developing your emotional intelligence or 10 tips for being a great communicator or whatever it is. So I put them all together and then the website guy I was working with, you know, I realized he needed to market it and I was absolutely rubbish at marketing it. So I uh, parked all the content and then I thought, oh, no, I need to share this anyway. So I've now put it on a place called uh, Udemy, U-D-E-M-Y. I don't know if you've heard of it, but um, anyway, if you want to go and learn to be a great salsa dancer, then go on Udemy and they give you an online course on salsa dancing. So if you go on Udemy and Google Stuart Lancaster Leadership, then my course is on there. And if you play your cards right, the whole course, because they offer it at such a discount, it's for like £10, UK pounds. So that's maybe, I don't know, $10 or something. Yeah. It's not going to cost you a fortune, but uh, there's a whole lot of stuff on there. So if people are interested, um, you can have a look. I've seen some of it, mate, and there's a lot of substance to it. So I would recommend people check that out as well. I didn't know it was on Udemy, but uh, yeah. that uh, yeah. it's huge, huge here in North the, America. The really good thing about Udemy, I found, is that it's it's extent because my network obviously is, tends to be very UK based, you know, Ireland, etc. On Udemy, you know, I've had people sign up from from India, from Australia, from New Zealand, from the US, from Canada. So it's great, really, you know, and that's it's just a good way of sharing sharing what I've learned. And. I appreciate you sharing what you have here today. So, listen, I'm definitely going to shoot you a note next time the wife and I are back in Ireland. Uh, we have to go through Dublin on the way home anyway, so maybe next time we'll, uh, we'll get to chat over a coffee. Cheers. Thanks, Philip.